0: Hello and welcome to a Care Institute podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Adrian Owen and we'll be discussing cognitive testing within the functional neurology paradigm. If you work with patients who are suffering from cognitive disorders and are looking to serve them at the highest levels possible, visit CareConsumer.com. Hello and welcome to another CareConsumer podcast. My name is Dr. Freddie Garcia and today we're joined by Dr. Adrian Owen. Dr. Owen, are you there? I'm here, thank you very much. How are you doing today uh, I'm doing very well thank you um thanks for having me on Well yeah, we're excited to have you on. You may be new to some of our scholars um, so would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself
1: uh of course yeah so i'm uh I'm a professor of neuroscience at the University of western ontario that's in uh, in london ontario in in canada and i um I trained uh, in the UK as you can probably tell from my voice. Uh, I'm <laughs> British originally. I've been here in Canada for eight years. Um, my background is mainly in uh, development of cognitive tests, neuropsychology and functional neuroimaging. I've spent about 30 years um, working with various types of neuropsychological tasks, putting people into brain scanners to see which areas of the brain those, those tests activate and developing tools that uh, practitioners and the public can use to assess their own brain function, even sitting at home.
0: Fantastic. Well, this is, this is exactly the reason you're on the show today, because I want to learn all about neuropsych testing. So we actually have neuropsychs taking our programs, but I'm, I'm in a position where I don't know that much about their profession and what they're doing and how it applies to functional neurology. So I figure, you know what, I'm going to go find an expert, bring them on the show, and voila, here you are.
1: Yeah, well, neuropsychological testing has a really long history. I mean, it's probably going back to almost a hundred years now, uh, and certainly in the last fifty years, this has been an extremely, uh, you know, important pillar uh, of of psychology. And uh, you know, the basic principle is that you assess performance. You assess performance with various types of tests, and in that way. Uh, You get a handle on what people's memory is like, whether people have memory impairments, how easily they're able to attend to maybe one or two or several stimuli at the same time. Can they concentrate? Can they plan for the future? All of these things are um, cognitive, so-called cognitive functions that we assess with neuropsychological tests um now over that i guess over the last twenty to thirty years there's been something of a revolution in neuroscience, and people have been taking much more notice of the brain so many of our so-called classic neuropsychological tests, things that were developed in the you know the 1950s to measure concepts like you know i q um, things like that um, are now being superseded by tests that are more specifically developed to target the brain and to target damage or dysfunction in certain brain regions. And that's really the area that, that I'm into. It's in translating those traditional neuropsychological tests into things that we can really use to understand somebody's brain.
0: So this is fascinating. So let's, <laughs> there's the way things were in the past and the way things are kind of going to now. So let's talk about the historical aspect, because I'm assuming that stuff is still very valid, right? People are still doing it?
1: It, it, certainly it is yeah i mean i'm i'm reminded of um uh a very f- a famous experiment that actually was um came out of the institute i used to work for in in cambridge in the u k um and this was on one of uh, sir edmund hillary's um Everest expeditions in the 1950s and uh, the experiment was to try and determine whether altitude and fatigue affected cognitive performance and uh, a bunch of climbers on that Everest expedition once they got to a certain altitude were required to sort cards into particular suits and numbers and these sorts of things and by looking at how their ability to sort cards changed as they ascended Everest it was possible to determine that but either altitude or fatigue or both were having an effect on their cognitive performance. Now, that's a really great example of a classic cognitive experiment looking at the effects of an external stimulus, in this case, altitude or, or, or fatigue on performance. But the, the critical thing is that it tells us nothing at all about why it is that these uh, climbers were affected. It doesn't tell us which parts of their brain were being most affected by this. Um, it just tells us that there is an impairment, and that's really the. Hist- I guess that's really the the historical. Um, uh, you know, that's the way things were done historically, and and there are many many. Fantastic cognitive and neuropsychological tests that have been developed over many many decades that do map out performance, and they can be used to uh, assess whether somebody's performance is deteriorating. Uh, they can be used to uh, assess whether somebody is getting better with a, a particular intervention, like a you know a drug, for example, um, uh, and they can be used in some cases, to uh, differentially diagnose different types of patient populations. But again, I'm I'm repeating myself, but I think it's very important to understand that these are typically measures of performance. They're not measures that are directly linked to brain function. Hmm.
0: So quick question, because I thought that was fascinating. Is this what the tests kind of look like? Or is it normally like in the room card sorting or on-site card sorting or what i guess is it a paper and pencil model like people are like filling out questionnaires or what does this testing look like
1: yeah so, so i mean again out of necessity of course this you know this field goes back to long before computers were readily available so typically many of these tests uh, uh, many of these traditional tests are administered, either pa- via paper and paper and pencil, with a, a trained administrator, somebody who's been trained, a neuropsychologist uh, who's been trained to give these tests. If you say take something like the the WASR, I guess that's a a classic example of a test. It you know it can take up to about three hours to complete. It requires a, a trained administrator to, um, to to you know to to, to give the test. Uh, it's typically takes place in a, you know, a, a quiet room uh, and is administered with some apparatus, um, cards for people to remember these sorts of things, um, but via paper and pencil. Of course, since about the 1980s as um, computers have become much more uh, commonplace. Many computerized versions of these traditional tests have been developed. And I, I think that's an interesting idea. That For for the most part, most computerized tests of cognitive function are are simply based on the traditional paper and pencil ones. People have turned them into digital versions of the same thing. And I think, by and large, they measure the same thing. Again, they're measuring performance, people's ability to remember, to attend, to plan for the future, to make decisions, these sorts of things. But they typically can't be linked directly back to brain function. Hmm. So... And this is this – is, uh,
0: the old way was more like paper, cards, you know, long tests with uh, somebody who was trained to do them. But now things are becoming more digital. So this is actually where I uh, heard about you and got connected with you is because of Cambridge Brain Sciences because you guys are on the forefront for making this technology um, easily accessible to everybody, correct?
1: That's correct. Um, I mean, we've had a slightly different approach. And I, I mean, I, I guess I'm embarrassed to say this is a little bit historical too now. I mean, we started doing this about 30 years ago, in fact, exactly 30 years, 1988. Um, I, I started, I was in the University of Cambridge in the UK at the time, and we started to develop some cognitive tests. But instead of just taking the traditional paper and pencil tests and turning them into computerized versions, mm-hmm. what we did is we looked at the patient literature. We looked for evidence that certain types of brain damage would lead to certain types of impairments. We looked at the uh, the literature that existed up to that point in, in testing animals, testing rats and, and monkeys, and we looked for those tests. Uh, we, we were developing them for humans, but we looked for tests that we knew would tell us something about brain function, because by this time, by the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, um, we were starting to learn much more about the relationship between cognitive performance and the brain. And what we wanted to do was to harness that relationship, to develop a a suite of tests that eventually became Cambridge Brain Sciences that would tell us how particular areas or networks in the brain were functioning. And of course, that has a number of really important implications. So we can go beyond just saying, well, yep, this person's memory is not as good as it used to be, but we can start to say, well, which aspects of their memory are not as good as they used to be? And and, and what does that tell us about the brain of that person, which parts of the brain are being affected, for example, by a disorder or, or a disease that they might have? Now over time, we were, i mean back in the early days of course this was pre internet in the late 1980s so the tests were simply developed to run on a, a desktop computer, but we gradually modified them uh, and with the you know emergence of the internet, we realized that this is something we could really take full advantage of we could we could get ourselves into a position where tests could be taken by people using a desktop computer or a, a tablet, even their own phones uh, in, their, in their own homes. And this is really the, um, I guess, the crux of what we tried to do over the last 15 years or so, is to take those tests that we developed in the late 80s, early 90s, that we know are dependent on specific brain functions and turn them into super efficient tests that can be taken over the internet, even by untrained personnel. I think that's a really important thing. If you compare it to something like, the ways are or to traditional forms of testing cognitive function? As I've already said, it could take about three hours. It requires um, a trained person to sit with the individual. What what about if you could reduce that to 20 minutes and get almost all the same information? And even more so, what about if the person could deliver that information for you, the, the, the patient or the participant, from their own home? And that's the question we've been asking. And I think we, we've made great We've made great progress in, in achieving that.
0: So now, now this is starting to make a lot more sense because this is why um, some of our faculty, so we have, we have our teaching faculty, and these are our doctors and clinicians that are teaching the functionalology courses, the clinical neuroscience programs, but they're in the trenches. They're working with patients, you know, five, six days a week, and that's where I started hearing about some of them using Cambridge Brain Sciences, places like Plasticity Brain Centers. Uh, Dr. Carrick, some of the ones that are developing some of our, our new programs, like the neurocognitive program in, uh, neurodevelopmental disorders. I start hearing rumblings of, C, you know, CBS Cambridge Brain Sciences, how this is important. We need to be uh, leveraging this type of technology. So what you're, you're telling me is it went from paper pencil, you know, more difficult to do. I don't want to say it was hard to do, but definitely more difficult to do uh, back when this was all originating. To is it a is it cloud based or
1: computer? I mean. You said they could do it from home. Some of these patients, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is is cloud based, and obviously, it's 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 completely secure. Um, we, it, I mean, it it people can actually log into Cambridge Brain Sciences and and take the test themselves if they're interested in understanding how their memory uh, is compared to other people or how well they can solve problems compared to other people. Uh, any member of the public can you know, just log in and do that. You don't have quite the same experimental control that we, you know, we like to keep in. We we don't really, um, you know, at least if somebody is, is, is addressing a particular clinical question or is really wanting to know whether, for example, uh, somebody is deteriorating because they've got Alzheimer's disease, then we, you know, we would like that to be uh, a little bit more controlled and we have a, a whole platform on the Cambridge brain sciences website that allows people to carry out structured tests so in that case there there would be an experimenter in, in your case it would be you know one of your colleagues a functional neurologist or a, a practitioner of some description who would set up the trial send a link to the patient and as i say they, they could be in their own home or they can come in and uh, you know do it in the laboratory or the clinic um and the, the patient would work through the tests on their own, without somebody standing over their shoulder telling them what to do or asking them lots of questions. The tests are stand alone. Once the person has got started, they can be carried out. Uh, the analysis is all done on the fly. And I should say this is, it's, it's a fairly sophisticated analysis that we use because we have about 30 years of experience of doing this and 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 many millions of tests have now been taken around the world i think at the last count it was 7 million wow. tests so we have a huge database so we know exactly how people perform um, how things like age affect performance Uh, and we can look you know if if, say in my case i'm a 52 year old british male if i perform a memory test i can compare myself to every other 52 year old british male uh, in the database of which there are you know many hundreds of thousands of individuals now and get a much more precise estimate of how i perform relative to people like me. And it, as you say, this is cloud-based. Uh, it all takes place over the internet uh, and works very efficiently, I think. So, so if
0: somebody uh, is using this in their clinic, do they have access to that data you just talked about saying, all right, I want to compare this person to this specific population for this age group or, or demographic or whatever it is? Is that all kind of part of it? Yeah. And that, is that what helps the doctor kind of figure out where their patient is or maybe where they're trying to return them to?
1: Exactly. Um, that's exactly what we do. Uh, so, the uh, when somebody takes a uh, uses the test for a clinical purpose to uh, you know assess a patient, then where the, the software automatically returns a report, and that report will take account of the person's age. Uh, it'll take account of the person's gender as well, and uh, it it will deliver results relative. To other people like that patient, and I think that's very important because, of course, we know that many aspects of cognition change with age. not not all negative not all negatively. Um, some some things we get better at uh, over time, but t- you know, typically we see deterioration of cognitive function with age. So I think it's very important to. Um, compare compare like with like, compare mm-hmm. patients to people who are of a similar uh, age to them. And that's all done automatically within the software. Uh, the software also takes account of things like how many times you've taken the tests. Uh, now, we work very hard to minimize so-called practice effects. And this is, again, a big difference between the Cambridge Brain Sciences platform and more traditional tests. Um, you know, typically paper and pencil tests, there's one version, maybe two versions, so that you can test the person twice. But what about if you wanted to follow a patient longitudinally over several years? For example, as they were deteriorating with Alzheimer's disease, you might want to test them 20 or 30 times over those years. And the Cambridge Brain Sciences tests generate novel problems Every time and that's all again all built into the software so somebody performing the task many times will never experience exactly the same problems more than once Uh, we've modeled this again we've had many uh, tens of thousands of people take the tests uh, sometimes several hundred times to look at how we can maintain a constant level of performance and and minimize so-called practice effects I think that's another really uh, important characteristic of the battery
0: I, this is really neat, right? When you hear about what you guys have done to kind of update all this information. So, so the way I hear it is, obviously, you could, there's an incredible amount of value in doing the initial assessment. You'll be able to get that data. And that's something that I think appears to people who have that function neurology model of care because they may be working with somebody. Uh, oftentimes, it's, in a, it's in a, a longer scenario depending on whatever condition they are dealing with. So you get that initial assessment, but because you have that variability in your testing, you're saying you're able to track changes over time, uh, maybe a little better than the the old fashioned way things used to be, because there was only one or two versions. Is that, is that correct?
1: That's that's completely correct. I mean I think it's it's much better than it than it used to be. My, I remember in the old days when I was starting out as a, a neuropsychologist in the late nineteen eighties, we would, you know, administer a test like the WASE or the Wisconsin card sorting tests or the Ravens matrices. And then we would go back and pull out a huge book of tables that would tell us Uh, Something about how performance related to other individuals that were in the normative database and of course that whole thing is very uh, Laborious and you know and time-consuming and and there's a limit to how much data you can include And this is again one of the amazing things fantastic things I think about the evolution of computing and the and the internet Uh, You know we have a we can compare the data to a a virtually uh, infinite number of Participants that have already taken the test. we can do Incredible calculations on the fly, um, and very, very quickly, while the person is still sitting in there in the chair, deliver the result. I mean, again, uh, in the old days, we we would do the testing and then we would go away and typically I would spend a week locked in my office trying to score all of the tests and work out you know whether the person was in the normal range and whether what they were impaired at and this would take time because traditional testing is you know is is a little slow and and, and methodical, but because now we can do it all online. Digitally, and we can return a report instantly, telling uh, the practitioner exactly how the person performed, how they perform relative to people their age, whether they're getting better or worse than they used to be, um, whether there are any whether there are any practice effects, even. Whether there's a meaningful change, because obviously cognition mm. varies from day to day, like everything else, it isn't a, a stable trait like your height, which is exactly the same every day. It's much more of a a fluctuating state, like something like blood pressure. That there, you have a resting blood pressure, but from day to day it will vary a little bit. And cognition is exactly the same. And a big question we've tackled in the last couple of years is, well, how do you how do you know whether a change is a meaningful change. If somebody has changed from one day to the next or one week to the next, how do you know if it's a meaningful change? And the answer to that is something that you could never do in a traditional paper and pencil way. The answer is to have an enormous database of people who have performed these tests many times in the past. And from that, we are able to develop measures of what counts and what doesn't count as a real change. And that's very, very important because that's, that's how we set up flags that say, well, this person, you might want to look at them a little bit more carefully because we think not only are they changing, their cognition is changing over time, but it's changing in a way that is beyond what you would expect by chance. It's, it's, a, it's a meaningful change. Mm.
0: So now you're talking statistics. So I got a question though. So as you guys updated these tests and maybe created some new versions of it that would kind of hold mustard over time, especially for repeated, beatedly beat- repeatability, um, were there growing pains to the testing? Because if it's all based off the the old uh, you know paper and pencil model did they were they still you know specific and sensitive like were you guys able to kind of crunch the data and say hey these tests are still valid and is there literature on this stuff
1: yeah so there's uh there's i mean there's a bunch of answers to that question i mean there were there were many growing pains or teething problems um i mean one is you know is making sure that somebody who might be sitting at home on their own knows absolutely uh how to perform the test because obviously if somebody goes into a cognitive test not quite sure what they're doing their performance is going to be poor it doesn't necessarily indicate they have a cognitive impairment but rather they don't quite understand the test and we've handled that with very comprehensive instructions with guided trials that lead people through a number of goes before they actually uh, you know, get into the tests so that you know that was one of the things that was was problematic. Overall, I mean, to address your question about, you know, do we know that they're still sensitive and valid? Well, we've been very lucky in that, you know, these tests have proved to be very popular over time. Um, and, you know, many, many people have used them. I mean, there's been upwards of three or 400 academic studies now using the tests. Uh, you know, many of the old effects that I saw in the late 1980s early 1990s in my during my phd years when i was assessing patients on some early forms of these tests many of these things we've now been able to replicate but i should say over time even though the tests have changed we've tried really hard to to maintain the core neuroscientific components of the test i mean that's been Absolutely impor- important to us. I mean, there's a there's a there's a temptation when you put something online or on a you know on a computer to to gamify it to make it you know much more uh, game-like, and we we've we've resisted that. We we've made the tests challenging and entertaining. I think without throwing away any of the core neuroscientific principles that that, that underpin them. I think that you know that is very uh, very important. Of course, an- you know another aspect is the emergence of tablets and 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 touch sensitive Mm -hmm. technology uh you know in the early days when we first developed these these tests we um we had people performing with a you know a mouse uh, because that's what most desktop computers used a mouse and a keyboard Uh, and that Obviously, it will slow people down slightly, and some of the things that we measure are based on reaction times and how quickly somebody can respond to something on the screen. And uh, if it's slowed down because they can't find a mouse or they're not familiar with using a mouse, and this is certainly a problem in the older uh, generations, uh, you know, then that can introduce problems. So we very quickly realised that we we had to embrace touch sensitive technology, uh, uh, you know, and have developed versions of the test that run. Uh, you know, using that technology on, on on tablets. And I think this gives a, a much more accurate assessment of somebody's current, uh, uh, current um, performance. Uh,
0: Doc, Dr. Owen, I'm kind of, in my head, I'm laughing a little bit because I'm realizing that there's going to be generations that are... Well, I've never used a mouse like like we did. <laughs> <laughs> they're only gonna, well, they're well, only going to know touch screen on their phone, their iPad, even even these new uh, amazing laptops that are like tablets at the same time. They're never going to use a mouse. I'm, I'm no, blown away no. right now.
1: And you know, I sympathize. I mean, I was you know, I'm old enough to remember a time before we had computers when everything had to be done on paper and pencil. And I would you know, I would go away from assessing a patient during my own PhD uh, and have to do the statistics on paper you know i had a i had a, a pocket calculator but that was it um so, so yes things have really changed but I, I mean i'm hoping we've really taken advantage of those changes because they they provide some very powerful new opportunities in in this area i think well
0: speaking of power and power in this testing i'm i have to ask this question and uh, i'm curious for the answer so at the beginning in the old Uh, not, I hate to say old-fashioned, but the testing that when it was first kind of came about and popularized, you were talking about uh, its performance. Um, At what point can this testing, I don't know if it's now or the way it is in its current iterations, can this testing start getting tighter correlation to different parts of the brain? Like if I look at a battery test, can I start correlating, hey, this part of the brain's working well, specifically, specific pathways? And and the reason I ask that... Is because I think our, our doctors they're going to want to use technology like this to say, all right, does this correlate with my physical or neurological exam? Because this would be a very helpful component of making an uh, an appropriate differential diagnosis. If, if I'm Ab- as I kind of abs- much this in my mind.
1: And this is this is absolutely central to what we have tried to achieve over the last thirty years in, de- in developing these tests. Um, I mean, let me give you an example. If you take mm-hmm. something like working memory, our ability to hold a piece of information um, you know, online or in our minds for uh, for as long as it's needed, it's it's a sort of a type of short term memory, but it's mm-hmm. uh, it can operate over a, a longer period. I mean, for many years, it was widely assumed that. Um, Patients with frontal lobe damage had working memory impairments. And if you are bad at a working memory test, then you might conclude that you had some problem with your frontal lobes. Well, we've shown that actually uh, using one of our tests, the the so-called token search test, that patients with both frontal lobe damage and temporal lobe damage are impaired at the task. So actually, it's a much broader uh, or, or much wider or broader types of brain injury can lead to performance deficits on that task. Now, the, the the real crucial piece of information is the deficits are different. So that that's that's really what these this sort of testing has has really bought us. It's that you can decompose performance in a way that was almost impossible to do uh, with paper and pencil, just because it's it's too complicated, you know. But what we've shown for example, uh, with the token search task, is that patients who have frontal lobe damage, yep, they are impaired, as everybody a- always suspected, but it's actually not a core memory deficit. They don't have a problem with memory. They have a problem with how they approach the task, how they organize their the contents of their memory, if you like. Temporal lobe patients, on the other hand, have the opposite problem. They have a core memory problem. They organize their approach to the task just fine. They go into it in a very strategic and organized way as a completely healthy person would, but they just can't remember. Um, so it's more of a, a, a classic memory problem. And, and I think this is terribly important because in that case, within one test, you can differentially diagnose whether a patient is likely to have problems with their frontal lobes or problems with their temporal lobes based purely on the pattern of deficits that are observed on that one working memory test. And this is a philosophy that, that works across all of our tests. It's not necessarily possible just to, to, to do differential diagnosis with a single test, but by looking at the, uh, the profile across all 12 tests, um, we certainly know that different types of patients uh, with, with damage to different parts of their brain will have a different signature of performance across those tests.
0: See, now this is exciting. Hold on one second. So you can put people through the battery, start looking at the results, and correlating across all the tests, you can get a better idea of how this patient, you know, specific regions of this patient's brain may be underperforming. How do I get that type of information? Does the system uh, bring that to the forefront for you, or is that something that, you know, that is in supportive literature? Because that, I think, is really exciting
1: yeah so um both of those things i mean some of that information comes in the you know the standard report that we uh, give if people want to dig a little bit deeper um there's a ton of literature now that we we make available supporting uh, these arguments i mean the 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 tests have been tried in in many many different populations from healthy aging to alzheimer's disease to parkinson's disease to adhd to ptsd uh, as well as patients with discrete brain lesions patients who've had neurosurgical uh, removals of, uh, of particular parts of their brain and this has given us uh, you know tremendous opportunity to relate the test to to both to damage to particular brain regions and as i've said the uh to, you know, to um the the patterns of deficits to you know to to particular impairments and one thing we did a lot of work on in the 90s and early 2000s was the relationship between alzheimer's disease and and parkinson's disease many people still i think think of parkinson's disease as being a purely movement disorder but actually these patients experience significant cognitive challenges particularly in the later stages of the disease and in many ways on the surface, they, they mimic what we see in Alzheimer's patients, but actually they're quite different. If you take the two populations and you test them um, you know, across the board on the Cambridge Brain Sciences test, what you'll see is a different pattern of impairment. Some tests are more impaired in Parkinson's disease than Alzheimer's disease and, you know, and vice versa. So the software returns some of this information. We also provide, if people are interested in particular types of questions, we also provide as much information as we can to encourage people to use a battery that is selectively, so, so you don't have to use all 12 tests, you could use a smaller number of tests that are known to be particularly sensitive you know, for example, to depression. Um, so we, we, we do provide that information um, to enable people to tailor the testing that they do to make it as efficient as they possibly can uh, and to target the question that they're really trying to answer.
0: I gotta say, this is very, very impressive what you guys have put together. I mean, I totally get the excitement now. Now it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, I, and I didn't really understand it. Like I knew, I was like... I hear the rumblings and people are like, hey, this is valuable. And I didn't know because, again, I didn't know much about neuropsych testing. But um, to hear from you and how it could be such a powerful tool um, in the toolbox of a functional neurologist or somebody who has that model, this is, this is awesome. This is incredible. <laughs>
1: yeah I think a lot of people when well, they don 't know much about it, and I would encourage people to visit the Cambridge brain Sciences website because there 's a lot of information you know about the tests you don 't have to sign up you don't have to pay anything and you can just read about the tests, where they came from, how we developed them, and the source of background information you know we now have and I think a lot of people that don 't do that they just read well there's some you know computerized tests. imagine that what we 've done is just taken some traditional paper and pencil tests and delivered them on a computer and it couldn't be more different than that. You know, we we could have done that, and there there are some merits, um, you know, in doing that. But what we we really try to do is to is to harness the power of the internet to say, well, what can we what can we do now that we couldn't we couldn't do before in a paper, you know, and pencil way. Let me give you another really great example of this, and that is, you know, if you take a you know some disorders, you know, we're we're just starting a study now looking at the you know the effects of. Um, Hypertension on, uh, on on the uh, development of you know uh, dementia in a, in a very large population of patients and the the deficits that we expect to see are probably quite subtle and and there are deficits that probably if you were to bring 30, 50, even a hundred patients into the clinic, test them manually using traditional paper and pencil tests, you, you might not pick up those those deficits, and you certainly wouldn't be able to. Determine why some patients develop dementia and uh, some patients don't well over the internet we can reach thousands of people very very quickly I mean Mm -hmm. we've uh, We've done a couple of studies with upwards of 40,000 people tested in the space of about two weeks and there it, it, by doing that, you can you can tease out really subtle effects. Not only if the effect is fairly minor but significant, you can see it with a few thousand people. But also you can do comparisons between people. Work out well why is it that this subgroup is developing dementia, for example, or is impaired on this task, and this subgroup subgroup isn't. Um, yeah. So you know. So again, sorry, long answer to your question. But the the idea was that was not just to replicate paper and pencil tests on a computer but say so with this new technology what can we do what questions can we ask that we wouldn't possibly be able to ask if we did this in a traditional lab or clinic based setting and and
0: what an awesome question to base your guys work off of that's phenomenal i I gotta tell you i'm just very very impressed i mean it it makes sense to me uh, how this could come together for somebody with a functional neurology paradigm of care Um, Dr. Oren, we're going to be wrapping up here, but if people wanted to learn more about Cambridge Brain Sciences, where can they go?
1: Well, probably the first port of call would be to go to CambridgeBrainSciences.com That's one word, CambridgeBrainSciences.com It's a very comprehensive website now It has examples of the tests You can even try the tests it has a lot of background information You can access the, the, the scientific papers that we've published to support the tests You can look at the history, how they were developed why they were developed what parts of the brain uh, they activate, uh, they, they, they recruit you know, and these sorts of things So a tremendous amount of information Of course, if you then want to know more there are contact details on the website for gaining access uh, to the platform and applying it to your own particular question or or patient population.
0: Super. So I'm going to put some of the links in the show notes for the testing and for more information. And uh, this was incredible. Thank you so much for sharing this. And I I really learned a lot. Uh, Dr. Owen, you you are a wealth and wealth of knowledge. Wow. It was just that was just that was great. I really enjoyed my time with you.
1: It was absolutely uh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. Have a great day, Dr. Warren. You too. Bye now. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make
0: any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on CarrickInstitute.com.